Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpulova-Said. I am a host of New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Christopher Merrill, author of On the Road to Lviv, published by Aerosmith Press in 2023, and the book was translated in Ukrainian by Nina Mori. Christopher Merrill is an American poet, essayist, journalist, and translator. Currently, he serves as director of the International Writing Program at the University of Iowa. He led the initiative that resulted in the selection of Iowa City as a UNESCO City of Literature, a part of the Creative Cities Network. In 2011, he was appointed to the U.S. National Commission for UNESCO. Hello, Christopher. Thank you so much for joining me today, and thank you so much for the book. Thank you, Natalia. It's a joy to be with you today. So um, I would describe On the Road to Lviv as a poem, but please correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. And if I read it as a poem, uh, it follows and records the developments of the Russo-Ukrainian War, and it absorbs and responds to what we call narratives that circulate around the war. Uh, and at the latter level, the text gets more personal and that, at the same time, more detached from the narrator. Uh, in spite of encompassing multiple sub-narratives, the title of the book, On the Road to Lviv, and it might sound as if there is a final destination at which the narrator wants to arrive. Um, would you talk about this journey that is encoded in the title, and what does the road to Lviv mean to you? Well, thank you uh, for that excellent summation of what the book uh, hopes to do. I think of it as a uh, a blank verse meditation on uh, Adam Zagajewski's famous poem to, to go to the world uh, on cultural diplomacy, which is something that I practice as a function of my job at the International Writing Program and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The poem began uh, in 2006 on my first uh, cultural diplomacy mission to uh, Ukraine, and the the circumstances are rather funny in the sense that uh, I was being driven west from Kiev to Lviv. It was incredibly cold, and I was in an unheated van, uh, and the, uh, the... cultural affairs specialist from the U.S. Embassy who was in charge of my trip. Uh, For some reason, the the van was unheated, and every few minutes she would roll the window down, uh, I think perhaps because she was experiencing uh, hot flashes in menopause. Uh, And I was in the back with another Ukrainian writer, and we were were so cold that uh, we ended up taking all of our clothes out of our suitcases and covering ourselves because these hot flashes kept coming and I, I was i was so cold i was shaking and at a certain point i thought i started thinking about adam's poem which is such a beautiful poem remembering the city of his birth that he really didn't see and again until he was much older and uh some of those lines were coming through my head and so i began taking notes as i was as we were continuing west and those notes seemed to be falling into uh, the rhythm of the blank verse, uh, a meter I, I, I like to write in. And so I kept I kept uh, picking away at it. And 
when that mission was complete and I came home, from time to time I would write a little more on those lines, never really confident that it would go anywhere, but that I, I found something in the music of, and, the, and the memory of that journey west uh, uh, congenial to the writing of more verses. I did it. I made a second uh, cultural diplomacy mission to uh, Ukraine in 2015, not long after the Russian invasion of, of the eastern Ukraine and, and occupation of Crimea. Uh, and by then, of course, the stakes were a, a lot different. And the uh, and I was taking notes in a in a with a, in a different frame of mind. I think would be the best way to phrase it. And I kept uh, adding lines here and there as the years went on. Adam Zagajewski came to back into my mind. I was always thinking about his poems and, and his prose, such a wonderful poet he was. And, and for some reason, not long before he passed away, I began thinking about him again and remembering uh, events uh, with him, uh, particularly uh, a reading at a literary festival in Slovenia uh, and so I kept writing lines. And then, of course, the Russians invaded Ukraine. As it happened, it was my it was on the day of my 65th birthday, which of course is a, a big moment in somebody's life. And I felt compelled uh, to keep trying I suddenly I felt, I felt compelled to, to bear witness in some fashion uh, within that larger framework of the poem that I had undertaken with no expectations of any anything many, many years before. And then, of course, the, the viciousness of the war, of the invasion, the, the, the terrible things that were being, that were happening kept coming to mind, and I would find myself uh, desperately trying to write about them in, in the hope of making making sense of, uh, of, of this, it seems to be history-changing tragedy that's unfolding before our very eyes. What's interesting about all this is that uh, I am not unfamiliar with uh, war zones. I uh, covered the wars of succession in the former Yugoslavia. I wrote two prose books about those wars. I wrote another book that uh, had to do with uh, a small war in Lebanon. Uh, So I've been in these kinds of places, and I never actually thought uh, uh, about writing poetry in any of those settings. Uh, when I was writing about the wars in the former Yugoslavia, I, I was always saying to myself that you know, Bosnian poets should be writing about this. I, I shouldn't write poetry. I will just document. This time around, I, I, I felt compelled to write uh, poetry, and that's that's how the lines kept kept coming until at a certain point I realized this seems to feel like a book and so that's that's what we have before us and i'm very grateful to nina murray for uh translating the poem in its entirety and to askel melnicic the publisher of aerosmith press to agree to publish both the original english version of the poem along with the translation it's a, a unique way to put a book together and uh i, I i'm hoping that it will uh, uh mean something to some readers here and and in Ukraine. Okay. Thank you. So I would like to uh, take a uh, sub-road <laughs> toward our conversation. Uh, you mentioned that you had two missions of um, cu- uh, cultural diplomacy to, to to Ukraine, and one was before the war, and another one uh, was 
right after 2014, which is considered to be the first stage of uh, the Russo-Ukrainian war today. So you had this pre-war experience. Would you just briefly describe um, what uh, your mission was and what your immediate observations were? Because it does sound like you had a very immediate experience of what the country is and how the uh, actual developments were uh, taking place. Yeah, well, the, the cultural diplomacy was undertaken at the behest of the U.S. State Department. And the, the first mission is kind of funny. I got a, I, I, the program I run, the International Writing Program, is funded to a considerable extent by the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. And so I, it's not unusual for me to go out as a cultural envoy to different places. Uh, the first mission to Ukraine was kind of funny because I got an email from somebody I knew at that time not very well at the State Department, and the subject line of the uh, the email was uh, your your journey to to Kiev, and I or actually Kiev as it was pronounced in 2006, at least for Americans. And I he said it said call me, and so I called that number, and I thought what 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 journey did Kiev, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, you're going, you know, you're going in three days. I said, what? <laughs> so, but, you know, I packed quickly and I, I flew there. And the idea in any cultural diplomacy mission, at least as, as I understand it, is, is an exchange of ideas and opinions and information between people in a people-to-people uh, -people exchange, right? So the first time I, I went by myself and, yeah, and it's acting, you know, it was wonderful to be in, in Ukraine at the time. Cool as it was, I, I live in Iowa, which is a pretty cold state as well, but uh, I, I don't think I've ever been quite as cold as I was that first winter in 2006. I was coming not long after the Orange Revolution, so one of the things that I noticed as we were driving west were all these orange banners in different places, and I thought, oh, that's, that's quite interesting. And the second mission took place, uh, again, as you say, not not long after the the Russian invasion, and on that one, I brought uh, some American writers with me: uh, Elliot Ackerman, a uh, terrific uh, nonfiction writer and novelist who served uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq as a soldier, and has since gone on to write some really fantastic uh, books, both in fiction and nonfiction. A poet uh, named Jeffrey Brown, who is better known in the United States as uh, uh, the, the cultural correspondent for the news hour, the, the uh, public broadcasting services uh, daily news program. He's also a terrific poet, um, and, uh, and and so and then and the writer uh, Jennifer Kropp, who's a, a novelist and translator of Polish uh, writings. And we spent time in Kiev, and then we went up to Kharkiv and uh, had events there. So. When the invasion began in 2022, and uh, Har Harkiv particularly was getting pummeled, I thought all I could think about was the, the, the places that I went in the university and the Museum of Natural History and notes that I had taken during that uh, journey in 2015 now seem to have a different kind of meaning uh, in my imagination and, and that that was part of what I ended up trying to write about was what those places looked like before the war and then yeah. trying to imagine what it must feel like uh, in the aftermath. I spent a lot of time in 
in Sarajevo during that earlier war, so I know something about uh, the terror that comes uh, when you're under siege and when there's uh, missiles flying all around you, something I've written about in prose. Uh, so in some ways, I, I think that in this book, I was trying to imagine my way into the lives of the ordinary Ukrainians via my own experience of a different war back in the 1990s, a war, I might add, uh, that that seems in so many ways to uh, be a pretty uh, accurate prophecy of what was going to be going on now uh, in the Russo-Ukrainian War. Um, maybe it would be correct to put it this way that uh, in many ways wars are the same, but at the same time, each war is quite different from others. And uh, since you have all these um, previous experiences of covering wars, um, how would you uh, summarize the similarities and differences in terms of, let's say, this current uh, Russia's war against Ukraine? What is it that is um, that is probably helpful to others to understand what's going on on the ground? But on the other hand, um, what are those specific things that would prevent us from putting everything under one umbrella of just violence and in this way uh, somehow blurring uh, the pain of the individuals who are actually um, experiencing uh, these trage tragedies on a uh, daily basis? That's a really terrific question. Uh, and in some ways unanswerable, but I, I, I'll, I'll take a stab at some of it. Every war, of course, is 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 different from every other war, uh, but it is the it is the it is the case that that wonderful line that the truth is the first casualty of war. That is that's very much the case in this war. Uh, of course, Vladimir Putin is creates this fiction that uh, Ukraine is a Nazi state, uh, even though its uh, uh, president is Jewish, um, but. Uh, the relentless repetition of these kinds of lies, what in America we have come to call the big lie, uh, this in some in the service of uh, of some means of trying to maintain power or to conquer another place, propaganda is absolutely essential to that those terrible acts. And in my mind, uh, what writers do is always at their best in the service of truth. It's different kinds of truth-telling that one engages in if you are a writer. And I, I felt that when I was covering the war in the former Yugoslavia, when I would find myself in a conversation with somebody and I, I would realize that I was unconsciously begun to parrot certain arguments I heard from one side or another, that was always the signal to me to get to the other side, to try to understand, or to, to balance my perspective. Uh, in this case, it's, it's you know, when you have 190,000 troops massed on the border and you're hearing of one lie after another, you realize that this is, the, the, the stakes are very much higher. Uh, the, the casualty count, of course, is going to be much, much higher than, than what happened in the Balkans. Uh, and you'll see some of the same kinds of paralyzed uh, responses by uh, political leaders that you you hope would act better. Um, fortunately, in this case, I think uh, President Biden 
immediately understood the larger implications of what this war would mean uh, for the Western world, for the cause of freedom, for the basic idea of uh, respecting a, a nation's sovereignty. All of those are under attack. Uh, and I think he acted quite well, quite decisively to, to counteract that and to create a coalition of forces uh, against what, what Putin was trying to do. But you still hear uh, the, the, the other arguments uh, keep arising to try to distract uh, Americans from the continuing obligation to, to fund and to, to support the Ukrainian army and the, and the Ukrainian cause. Uh, in, in, in the Balkans in the 1990s, the, the issue was here was a beautiful city in Sarajevo that had just hosted the uh, Winter Olympics. And eight years later, it was about to undergo the, the longest siege in modern history, longer even than the siege of Leningrad. And uh, uh, that's, uh, that at the time seemed like the central cause of the time. Even so, uh, I, I remember um, talking to the great New York Times reporter, John Burns, who won a Pulitzer for some of his reporting on the war in the former Yugoslavia. And he said to me two things that I have always kept in mind. One, he said, this story, and he pointed to the, the hill, the mountains surrounding Sarajevo where the Serbian uh, forces were arrayed. This story writes itself. And the second thing he said was that the New York Times, he was he was the Times Bureau Chief in Sarajevo at the time, had done a, a poll of its readers and discovered that uh, something like uh, 19% of the readers were reading the articles, the Burns's articles on the war uh, in, in Bosnia and particularly the siege of Sarajevo. And I thought to myself, we, we imagine the New York Times readership to be the most sophisticated, the most current in the U.S., but if less than one in five Americans were reading these stories that, to, to my mind, were central to uh, whatever, the, whatever the new world order was going to come to resemble, I thought that we're really in, in for trouble. And that's the, the cause of truth is always, uh, is always uh, at, at the mercy of, skilled propagandists, skilled uh, fiction writers. So, so uh, the stakes are considerably higher now than they were back in the 1990s. Uh, but uh, the, 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 the fallout is just the same. I also think back, when I think back to the 1990s, I, like so many people that, who were covering that war, were always arguing for the U.S. government to uh, armed the Bosnians so they could defend themselves. And, uh, uh, you know, they kept on holding off, holding off, holding off. And then finally, in uh, the summer of 1995, the Serbs uh, massacred 8,000 men and boys at Srebrenica. And at that point, the scale of uh, war criminality is so great that uh, they have to engage. And, and in short order, with the help of cruise missiles and some targeted airstrikes, they pretty much brought the war to an end in a couple of weeks. And uh, and I remember driving out of Sarajevo in December of that year, after the Dayton Peace Accords had been had been signed, and I was with a humanitarian. We we passed a 
uh, we would go entering a Serbian village. In, in the middle of this village uh, was one uh, in, in the central part of the town. Uh, one building was looked like spaghetti. It was a command and control center. Uh, and everything around it was exact, was fine, untouched. And the humanitarian said to me, you just look at that, that's what one cruise missile did. Imagine if that had happened three years ago, which tens of thousands of people would not have lost their lives. It feels sort of like the same, where it's up to like the same situation now with arming uh, the Ukrainian army with these teams and different kinds of cruise missiles with a with a larger radius um, to, to get into into Crimea proper and in and into Russia. I understand all the arguments against it, but I also understand I have the historical memory of how long it took us the West to rally the last time uh, when ethnic cleansing was underway in the Balkans and uh, in that way I, I see these similarities and those are the kinds of things that keep me awake at night. Um, I really appreciate how you put uh, all kinds of um, texts, well, let's put it this way, uh, together. And by texts, I mean ideas, opinions, what we call narratives, uh, discourses, facts. Um, so uh, the, I, I would like to read out just a um, very short um, a fragment from uh, the poem. It's page 12. Um, the Kremlin promises a military and technical alternative if Ukraine refuses to kowtow to Russian demands. To sign away its own security and, by extension, the West's raison d'etre ideals and democratic rhetoric, only a fool or traitor would support surrendering without firing a shot, and we are flush with both like every nation. Pity the scholar who can't imagine why Russian hypersonic carrier killers may be unleashed in the first strike. And if it is, a military planner schooled in the Kremlin's strategy explains that it will be game over for the West and possibly all of civilization. And uh, the whole poem... Um, focuses on history and as you pointed out there are a lot of references to history not only on a broader collective level but on a personal level as well uh, but um, as you pointed out history is uh, kind of a driving force to some extent of this war particularly as the Kremlin keeps uh, in escalating uh, escalating all kinds of narratives that are genocidal in, in its nature right now. So uh, my question is, uh, what is history in your opinion and how you approach history? Um, because what uh, Putin did to history was that he completely, uh, to some extent, uh, subverted the very word but by engaging in his rhetoric, um, maybe we do, um, to some extent, give some weight or we validate his words to some extent, but not to engage with that kind of rhetoric will also be, I would say, um, not quite fair. And it would be very hard to justify why would one be quiet and not respond to that kind of 
um, uh, narrative about Ukrainians not being a, a real a people or a real nation distinct from Russian. So um, how do we deal with history today? Uh, how do you approach history when you um, um, write um, about uh, this war? Yeah, well, that's again another wonderful question. Um, your obligation, in my view, as a writer is to get the facts straight. Uh, and in, in the case of this book, I'm trying to give voice to different people, uh, both the propagandists and uh, ordinary citizens, in the service of what I hope will be a larger truth. And uh, that means uh, being available to lots of voices, making sure that there are different kinds of voices operating within the, within the poem. But... Uh, taking care to make sure that I don't subscribe in any way to propaganda on, on any side. I'm trying to uh, feel my way forward, uh, understanding that history is in probably in every sense. It is, a, it is a matter of storytelling. And there are some storytellers are better than others because they pledge allegiance to the facts and because they try to understand the totality of the uh, of, of the experience. Here's one way I think about it. When I wrote the book, uh, Only the Nails Remain Scenes from the Balkan Wars, uh, there are uh, several kind of funny passages because in, in Sarajevo, for example, I'd probably never heard more jokes than when I was in Sarajevo. And of course, people tell jokes to pass the time, but also to let off steam. It's a pressure valve, uh, a, kind of, a kind of release. And so I thought when I'm writing this book, I need to make sure that I uh, include the humor, that I give readers a sense of the totality of what that experience was all about. Because it's in those particulars, those concrete details, and those jokes and storytelling that, that you engage in, you start to get a glimpse of that larger truth and that that's the ways in which, you know, if truth is the first casualty of war, then it's the writer's responsibility to find ways to get at that truth. Uh, and of course, it's it's a casualty of war because the propagandists have much larger platforms than a lowly poet in the United States, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to talk a little bit about violence and this concept of violence that is present um, in your poem as well. Um, although um, it's not through some direct engagement, right, with some philosophical explanation, what it means and how it impacts the individual or the humankind, um, but rather through some specific events, uh, through specific facts. And it's page 64. Um, the reconstruction of the theater bombing in Point estimated that at least 600 citizens were killed. That day in March, in what investigators concluded was not only the most heinous war crime in the first months of the invasion, but the most visible in modern warfare, what a uh, set designer had inscribed the word children in the white paint on the pavement outside, the entrances in front and back in Cyrillic, letters large enough for satellites to register and journalists to broadcast around the world, 
and Russian pilots to read before they followed their orders. Bombs away. So there is a local, so to speak, level of the war when mothers, for instance, are trying to save their children, and there is a global level. The NATO stands on the war, for instance, the negotiations between the West and Ukraine in terms of military and humanitarian aid, as well as the West's ongoing hopes to establish some sort of dialogue with with Kremlin even today. Uh, there is an attempt to show the gap um, of a war perception that is exp experienced by uh, individual people uh, who wants to protect their children and the imaginary political players that don't seem to relate to the pain of the mother, for instance, uh, who wants to just save her child from the violence of a Russian soldier. Uh, would you elaborate on how the nature of violence that shocked many after Russian troops left Bucha um, and um, how violence is articulated by those who are its targets and those who do not participate, though who sympathize but um, do not seem to undertake uh, all measures um, possible to stop the violence and uh, punish the perpetrators. The, uh, excellent question. It's uh, part of the uh, inspiration to write this poem was to, on the most basic level, document what was going on so as not to forget the early days of the invasion and what sorts of things were being reported on in major media around the world and in my conversations with Ukrainian writers, etc. Uh, so I, I, I felt that I felt compelled to, to document as much as I could, particularly because uh, violence tends to make, at, at a certain point, one gets numb to the effects of it in the same way that one becomes numb to uh, the ways in which propaganda normalizes uh, vicious behavior. And again, what a writer seeks to do at their best, I think, is to uh, puncture that uh, that feeling of numbness so that we are alert again to what it is that's going on in different places and uh, particularly when war crimes are being committed. And the war crimes that have been documented so extensively after Burja and uh, in Kherson and in various other places, there, there can be no doubt that uh, uh, on the validity of the, the claims about these war crimes, that evidence needs to be uh, analyzed, gathered, analyzed, documented, so that at some point down the road, we hope there will be justice for, for at least some of the victims of this this tragedy. And 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 so you know we, we have to be alert to what the the violence is all about. Uh, you know when when a when a Russian pilot sees this the word children and still releases the bombs. Under orders, they're you know they're ordered to do such a thing, but it's a it's a it's a kind of savagery that uh, if it were to happen to their own children, they would be as horrified as anyone would be. And so I I sought in that passage in the poem to to put together all the different ways of approaching that word to set designers and think what can we do? How can we save our children? Well, we'll put that sign. We'll we'll, we'll scratch out that sign so that anybody could see it. It's also the case that satellites will register it and, and thus it can be cataloged as part of the inventory of war crimes that investigators and prosecutors will later use 
to bring justice to that situation. And then journalists are also uh, writing it and filming it and photographing it, all different ways of trying to put uh, to juxtapose the heinous act of Russian pilots bombing uh, a civilian structure where children are hiding and uh, it's, a, it's a larger war at hand. Uh, do you believe that there is a, an effective way of speaking about war so that, well, um, the um, uh, the pain of those who are directly affected by it would be delivered in a proper way. But on the other uh, on the other hand, um, those who are not directly affected could somehow sympathize. And I'm asking this question because particularly after the first two, three, four months um, when the full scale invasion started, um, to, to an extent, it was easier to talk about uh, personal experiences because people would sympathize. But then gradually the conversation moved toward statements like, well, I understand the war is a very emotional event for you, but the war is complicated and we have to uh, take some balanced position so that we hear the viewpoints from both sides. And in this way, the perpetrators become also participants of the dialogue. And so um, th th this kind of um, uh, this kind of change made me think about whether it's possible to find this effective way which can still uh, state clearly who the perpetrator is and who the victim is and how these kind of conversation, even if it's not a dialogue, but this kind of conversation can be can be conducted in the way when the perpetrators do not become victims as well. Yeah, well, that's that's at the heart of truth telling, and I I, I know that uh, when I covered the war in the former Yugoslavia, I remember the strange feeling of being in a city under siege for weeks at a time, scared all the time, and then getting on a a UNHCR flight to, let's say, Ancona, Italy, or split Croatia, and being in, in the so-called West, 100 miles away from uh, concentration camps, and life just goes on uh, as, as usual, right? And uh, people uh, uh, mostly are, are keen to turn away from the most gruesome aspects of life. That's just the nature of it. Here's a, a funny, another way to think about it. 15 years ago here in Iowa City, we had a catastrophic flood, a 500-year flood, which did, did about a billion dollars worth of damage, destroyed the entire, the arts campus of the University of Iowa, where I work. And uh, at one point, uh, it was common that you, people went, uh, the citizens of Iowa City went there. We were filling sandbags and putting them up to try to save things. There was a, you could find on YouTube videos hundreds of uh, people shared, uh, taking books out of the library to save them from being flooded. And I took my then teenage daughter uh, with me. One day we were uh, sandbagging all morning and then when we were too tired to keep going, we drove home, but it was a very sunny day. And the only way we could get back to our house, uh, so many roads were closed because of the flood. We had to take a sort of circular drive around. and. Within 10 minutes, we passed, it was a sunny day, passed a golf course and people were playing golf. And 
And and my daughter said, "That's it's so weird, isn't it? I mean, people playing golf is it nothing uh, has gone wrong? But in fact, most of the city was, you know, streets were closed, bridges were closed, houses had been destroyed, our art museum, our performing arts center, all these these uh, essential uh, buildings were destroyed, and you know, people go on with their lives. That's, that's I think that's human nature, and." Uh, the best writers about best war writers. When I think of George Orwell's *Homage to Catalonia*, his incredible book about the uh, the Spanish War, Civil War, or Michael Hare's *Dispatches*, his war about um, the Vietnam War. Uh, the best writers they all approach the subject from different perspectives, but what they're hoping to give the reader is some sense of what it meant to be alive in that moment in those dire circumstances and some people rise to the occasion and act well and others become war criminals and uh hard to know who's gonna who's who's going to rise to the occasion and who who won't um but i think my job as a writer is to try to tell some of those stories as well as i can and hope to uh be as truthful as possible about what it is I experienced, what I witnessed, what I documented, what I tried to bring to a readership. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, is um, literature political for you? And if yes, what does it mean? Say, say again? Is, is literature, is writing literature political for you? And if yes, uh, what it means? There's always a political component to it, for sure. Uh, uh, you know, the funny thing is, so about... Um, Let's take Orwell's homage to Catalonia. For me, the least interesting parts of that book are where he starts going into the politics, a direct description of what's going on in various meetings uh, on the Republican side. Um, that gets a little bit boring, but what's interesting is when he's just describing the scenes, uh, telling stories. So uh, there's, there's when you're writing about a war, it cannot help but have a political dimension because it is... As von Clausewitz said, war is the continuation of politics by other means. Uh, and so on some level, it, it, it is, of course, a largely political affair with bloody consequences. And writers, at their best, are, re, are, are always cognizant of that and hoping to uh, be fair in their judgments and accurate in their descriptions of what it is they see unfolding before them. Um, I wanted to um, read out another um, fragment. It's page 74, which also relates to um, your answer that uh, you just gave. Um, fascism, Russian style, Ukrainians call uh, Russiaism, a coinage born of code switching and the criminal brutality of this special military operation Summary executions, rape, deliberate shelling of civilian infrastructure, kidnappings, and forced disappearances all can accelerate the evolution not only of the defensive strategies deployed to stave off more atrocities, but of the very language of the victims, Ukrainian in this case, little Russian, as sneering Nabokov referred to it. In his biography of Gogol, the gifted son of Ukrainians who chose to write in Russian wisely, Nabokov believed, which 
more Ukrainians defended daily in poetry and on the battlefield than Russian forces could annihilate. Now I recall another emigre, my teacher, Joseph Brodsky, who lamented Ukraine's decision to seek independence, warning his former countrymen, uh, you Bravehearts, in an unpublished poem that when their time is up and they scratch at their mattresses like dogs, they will forget uh, the flatters of Taras and whisper Pushkin's verses to the air. So, so literature is political indeed. Yeah, and it's uh, it, and that poem uh, by Brodsky, it's um, of course is a notorious poem, and and I uh, I take seriously his literary executors' note that he he chose not to include it in, in his collected poems, which is to say, I think that Brodsky fell victim himself to uh, a certain kind of. Uh, phobia, if you will. And this is a man who had been uh, kicked out of the Soviet Union. And and when I was his student, uh, said that he, he, he longed to die in, in Russia. But when uh, the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union dissolved, he, he didn't go back. Um, and so I, 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 t I sometimes take that, that it, the writing of that poem is, you know, we, we have these impulses, we follow them. A really wise writer at a certain point will say, "Ah, you know, maybe not a poem to collect." I didn't. I I, uh, I was just angry, and I hadn't really thought it thought through the consequences of what I was writing. I I imagine that was partly what went, went through his mind. He, I'm assuming, he just decided this is not this isn't up to what he's he's capable of. Uh, and but the, it, it's such an ugly. A poem that he wrote uh, about Ukraine that uh, it's it, it's 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 hard to see your teachers fall uh, fail in that way that they they would succumb to that. But it's you know uh, America's first great poet uh, Walt Whitman. Uh, he wrote a lot of terrible poems too, and uh, poems that that just did not survive. I I I I think we can forgive Brodsky's uh, error here because he was smart enough not to publish it uh, uh, that that that's that's the end that's the end of that of that part of the story yeah well um uh, I, I also read a couple of um I also read a couple of interviews um, which were given by those people who knew brought the intimately and they always mentioned this poem as some unfortunate event but yeah. they literally uh, also um, say something to the fact that, well, um, but uh, I'm, I'm more than um, willing to forgive him for that because... Because, because the thing of it is, every decent writer looks back over their work they've written it in a lifetime. I've reached that age that I have no choice but to do that. And I think, oh my God, what a terrible thing I wrote there. I mean, what, uh, how, how, what was I thinking? Well... You know, I think that I wasn't thinking as well as I should have. I wasn't interrogating those materials as well as I should have. And I think that Brodsky uh, must have come to think the same thing about what he wrote there, and he just wanted to put it put it out of his mind that he had he had written such a poem. Um, I wanted to also briefly talk about um, what creates hope for survival and healing. 
as the atrocities that you describe uh, in uh, the road to the beef um, will have to be healed. Uh, and I understand that, first of all, the war has to stop and the perpetrators will have to be punished and the territorial integrity will have to be reconstructed. Are these political events part of the healing process in your, uh, in your opinion? And this question uh, is inspired by your text in which the individual and the collective collide. The political become part of life of those who lost their loved ones. Yeah, that's, I think that's an accurate summary of what ends up having to happen. First is the, um, uh, the careful documentation of what happened. It's as if, I think of sometimes in writing, is you're a little bit like a doctor. Uh, you're trying to get an accurate diagnosis, at least in the first drafts of something that you write. In this case, it's the first draft of history. And you understand that you're not going to get every detail correct. You'll get, you'll miss this. You'll misunderstand that. Uh, and but, but an accurate description of that shared reality is essential to any hope of uh, finding a way forward or some sort of healing. Uh, justice has there has to be uh, ways to uh, enact justice. There has to be that the war had the fighting has to come to an end. There's a wonderful poem that I've always loved by Wisława Szymborska. It says, it goes, after every war, uh, someone, basically someone has to clean up. And what do you do after the war? I uh, watched all that happen in the Balkans. And uh, remember, I was back in, in Sarajevo and Mostar in 2001, just before 9-11. And you know, the wounds were so d deep. And uh, to this day, they're still deep. The, the shrapnel marks in the, in the street and on the buildings were still there. Uh, time will heal some parts of it, but time will also uh, uh, be moved in different directions based on what people write about, right? You know, just imagine how this serves part of the propaganda to get, it first serves to uh, attack uh to launch the war in 1991 was their defeat on the battlefield 600 years before that. And the, the whole uh, tradition of Serbian epic poetry about that terrible defeat on the field of blackbirds, as they called it. And, you know, that's when you realize, gee, uh, uh, any form of writing can have both healing properties and uh, disastrous consequences, which is why the, uh, the another... Polish poet, always in my mind, Czesław Miłosz, and I'm paraphrasing, would say that the poet hopes that good spirits, not evil ones, uh, dictate what, what he writes. And so, Art, would, to go back to that Brodsky poem, Ukraine, I think at, on some level he was so close to Miłosz. I think he realized, ah, you know, the, the evil spirits dictated the writing of that, so we're just going to put it aside. And, and you never know uh, at the end, whether what you're writing is, is any good or, or you, you hope it's true, you hope it's honest, you hope it's rigorous, you hope your interrogation of the language and the materials is up to snuff. But, you know, we get it wrong. That's, that's the nature of, of, uh, of, of human behavior. And uh, so we, 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 we look forward to a time where it might be possible to forgive our enemies, uh, because they have made 
their own accounting. They have come to terms with what they what was done in their names, if not the perpetrators themselves, who will you know usually find a way to, to get off and, and to to survive. But at, at some point, uh, the fighting will end, and uh, one hopes that that good writers will have added to the fabric of knowledge through their careful documentation of what they what they see. And in this case, it's going to be, of course, Ukrainian writers are the first to do that, and they'll do it in, in so much more rigorous and uh, moving ways than what I was able to do in this, this little poem of an outsider witnessing uh, disaster. Um, maybe uh, one more uh, question. Um about the um, uh, poem in general, uh, it is dedicated to Adam Zagayevsky. Uh, and uh, would you just tell us a few words about um, Adam Zagayevsky or and maybe his role, so to speak, his role in this text? Well, uh, I, I had, have always loved his poems. Um, particularly to go to the Oak, which was uh, a, a really important poem for me at a, at a very early age. I also had the good luck to know him a bit and uh, uh, to host him for readings and uh, to see him in action. And he was he was such a gentle man and, uh, 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 and, and of course, a uh, terrific writer, friends with people like uh, Biwosh and Brodsky and Derek Walcott uh, and Seamus Heaney, uh, poets I revere uh, in their different ways for their different qualities of their of their verse. But um, you know, I, there's there's this scene in this poem where he's giving a reading in the courtyard of a uh, the the ruins of a medieval castle in Slovenia, and all the poets are sitting. Uh, it's, it's, it's a September afternoon. They're sitting under this large chestnut tree and. Uh, while Adam is reading in his very gentle voice, chestnuts, huge chestnuts are falling out of the trees and landing on the heads of the poets. That, and I happen to be standing at the back, so I, I, I was safe from this. And I, so I was watching the poets. They're, they're listening hard to what Adam is reading, but they're also looking up. Uh, and it occurred to me, because I don't want to get hit by a, a chestnut, that it looked a little bit like uh, they were praying. And I thought that... that and reminded me of that close connection between poetry and prayer. Uh, Adam's poems, I think, work in many ways like like prayers, and uh, I, I, I like to think that um, poetry at its best is a form of prayer. So this is a sort of prayer for for Ukraine in this dark moment. Well, uh, thank you, thank you so much, uh, Christopher. Thank you so much for this conversation today, and thank you for. Uh, for your book on the road to Lviv, which um, does uh, record and document uh, the development, the uh, very initial uh, stage of the um, full-scale uh, invasion um, <clears throat> that took place in 2022. Uh, and uh, the poem does help us better understand uh, the emotional state um, of those who were in the country and those who were directly impacted by the uh, by this atrocity. Well, thank you so much for the book. Thank you. This has been a riveting conversation. Uh, 
Today I spoke with Christopher Merrill, author of On the Road to Viv, published by Aerosmith Press in 2023, and the book was translated in Ukrainian by Nina Murray. Thank you for listening to New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.